Welcome to the Hope Sheds Light Rise with Hope podcast. I'm Pam. This season, I hope you join us for the Recovery Speak series. Each month, my guest and I will take a deep dive into the topic of recovery. We hear a lot about addiction, but in the Recovery Speak series, we will learn what recovery is, what it looks like, how it shows up in our communities, families, and friends. We will take a special look at how stigma can stand in the way of hope and healing and what some people are doing to overcome that. Please join us as we tackle the real issues, share actual experiences, offer a little strength, and provide a whole lot of hope. Hey, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us at the Rise with Hope podcast. Um, Recovery Speaks, we're here to lower stigma, to lift up the voices of the many individuals in our community who are changing the face and the discussion around um, substance use disorder, recovery. And um, I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Nikki Tierney. Nikki's uh, rapidly becoming a very good friend of mine. And um, you know, I can't wait for you guys to hear from her. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly my honor. Uh, reducing stigma is a passion of mine, and I, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. So our goal on the podcast really is to just hear from you, like your authentic voice, how you, you know, how your path crossed with addiction and substance use, whether that started in childhood or, or you know, as an adult and whether it has impacted you directly uh, or a family member or both, you know, just sharing a little bit of your story. Um, and then as that unwinds, I'll probably, you know, interrupt you occasionally and just ask you some questions and see what direction we go in. Are you okay with that? That sounds wonderful. Absolutely. So, you know, just give us a little glimpse of you and your history with uh, addiction in general. So very briefly, I, you know, really lived an idyllic life as a child, um, a loving, warm family, certainly not perfect, but they were very loving and warm, older sister, older brother, married parents, um, you know, worked hard. But for whatever reasons, I was constantly afraid of death. I was always afraid of death. I was real clingy with my mom, uh, nuclear war in particular, just very catastrophic thinking. Um, and... I also probably, you know, was a little hyperactive. So I got into a little bit of behavioral problems, but um, I slowly found that either studying and reading or playing sports helped me tremendously. They were peaceful times and um, it wound up being a kind of healthy escape that gave me opportunities I wouldn't have otherwise had. I did very good academically and athletically and I received a full scholarship to a private school we traveled all over the country with my soccer team. I made the junior Olympic soccer team. Like things were just so good. And a lot of my behavioral problems were under control. And so was my, again, looking back, anxiety over this, you know, pre just, I was preoccupied with death constantly. And so my freshman year, I was starting varsity basketball as a freshman on one of the most prestigious programs in the state. And I felt sick and everyone was saying I was nervous whatever happened, I, I, my stomach ruptured and I had to have life-saving surgery that night. Wow. And, and you're um, high school or college? High, high, high school? school. I was wow. 14 years old and I was, you know, this little thin 80 pounds shaking. I had no idea, but closest to death. I remember laying just, you know, naked, my little self on this table. It was so cold. 
the closest to death, I wasn't afraid. Pam, I felt this warmth. I felt a glow. I felt safe, but it wasn't Jesus springing me into heaven. <laughs> Looking back, it was because morphine and anesthesia were coursing through my veins. And I think for whatever reason, it took away the anxiety. It took away the fear. The next two weeks, I was in intensive care on extremely high, powerful levels. I had to have multiple, you know, surgeries, um, different organs were damaged and it was, it was a long go of it. And then I was sent home with Percocets and I never forget, they told my family, keep ahead of the pain, never let the pain get ahead of you. And yeah. And so again, in retrospect, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but we, my mom, I'd be resting and she would like wake me up to give me pain medicine. And then um, I started to go back to school, started to try to get back in physical shape. And I began becoming even more afraid of death than I was to begin with. And I would think that my stomach was collapsing and my lungs were collapsing. I had peritonitis and they would rush me back to the hospital. And what would they do? Phenobarbital and Maalox, yes. So basically, again, in in retrospect, I was probably having panic attacks or anxiety or post-traumatic stress, something. And I took medicine. I took pills. And it worked. Make no mistake about it. It worked. It did its job, but it didn't. So I don't know how else to describe that. You know, it was at the time it seemed life-saving. And then, of course, there were other factors. I began, you know, experimenting with alcohol. Um, I used cocaine in high school. By the time I graduated high school, I had been arrested three times. I was in so without outing your age, like what? 50. <laughs> what decade are we talking about? This was this, that, you- this would have been I, I was in high school from 86 until 90. Okay. Yeah. Right. When they weren't arresting children for drinking, it wasn't a big deal, which says shout such a message of how bad my substance use disorder was at the high school level. But Pam, again, stigma free. It wasn't even stigma at the time. It just wasn't even on anyone's radar. People thought it was Nikki being Nikki. It was kids being kids, whatever. I graduated National Honor Society, ninth in the class, multiple full scholarships offers for two sports, state champion. Who would think I had a problem? Yeah, I know. Well, also probably suburban, white community. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Like again, and this is this is part of where I'll kind of wrap around. I don't know so much stigma or my my vision of who was an alcoholic at the time. We called them drug addicts. We didn't have the person centered language was, you know, a homeless older man in front of a liquor store drinking out of a, you know, supermarket bottle, like a, you know, brown bag bottle. I never knew any women who struggled with mental health or more importantly, substance use disorder. You know, it's so funny you say that because I've interviewed a couple of women. I'm a little older than you, but in our, in our age group, and they say the same thing. Like they never knew in particular with alcohol, you know, drug addiction wasn't even in, you know, anywhere on the radar, but that they just didn't know that women could be alcoholics. Their only, you know, recollection or sort of understanding of an alcoholic is exactly what you just described, you know, to a T. So the gender thing was huge, right, Pam? No way were women alcoholics. We sipped whatever we sipped and that was it. (laughs) Yes, we were encouraged, even being pregnant, to go ahead and uh, take the edge off. So... 
All right, so your introduction to painkillers came through um, an emergency situation. And honestly, if I'm you know thinking back, kind of the first wave of pill pushing, for lack of a better term, was, was in the very early 90s. So sounds like you were getting caught up in that a little bit. Absolutely. It was just, you know, again, my parents sometimes would express we should have done better. We didn't know, but nobody knew back then. I had multiple um, health issues. I was attacked by a dog, had to have seven facial reconstructive plastic surgeries. I had more stomach issues. It seemed like I was constantly being given a pill and more importantly, a powerful pill for somebody who had such predisposition to develop substance use disorder. I don't at all I'm not against medicine, I'm not against pain relief, but what I'm saying is that equipped with the right knowledge, we could have identified me as somebody who had high propensity. I have mental health issues on both sides, maternal and paternal, substance use disorders. I mean, I'm not, again, casting any dispersions where, you know, an Irish Catholic family from, you know, Bayonne. I mean, <laughs> most of my uncles, you know, we, uh, you know, so anyway, I just think with the right information, we could have handled things differently. And the other thing too, and I'm almost embarrassed to say, I didn't realize that, you know, very successful people from very healthy families or that didn't have, you know, looking back, my, what happened to me at 14 was trauma, but I didn't realize that people like me could have this dreaded, what we called back then the problem. I, I mean, I, I totally relate. I remember coming back from um, my you know, trip to Florida after my high school graduation, which was earlier than yours. <laughs> and I had, I used so much cocaine down in Florida in the 1980, 81, uh, hitting this, it was so pure and so much. And then I came back to New York and I'm home and I'm in bed, like with the flu for a couple of days, had no clue. Like, it was not on my radar that I might be developing a drug addiction. Like, no, I just partied and had fun, and, you know, in Florida for, for a week. And I, I just didn't know, you know, and this was, this was in the eighties, you know, so it was unfolding at, at the time, but the problem clearly was there for other communities and the information was there for, you know, for other communities. So you're right for women, and in our communities, shamefully, you're right. Like we just didn't think that it rose. It wasn't our problem. Like it was another community's problem. That's so unfortunate because what that does is, and it still does is keep us stuck, right? I mean, once you realize you had a problem, was there sort of this element of fear or shame about reaching out or acknowledging? Did that become part of a barrier for you to reach out for help? Or was that not really part of your story? So, yeah, I, I went to college. I was an academic All-American. All the success continued. I got a full scholarship to law school, practicing lawyer. I mean, I think not even not about reaching out, just the level of denial. I get paid $300 to solve your problems. I don't have a problem. It was physically impossible for someone, quote unquote, as successful as me, to have a problem. So yes, when people would mention like, Nick, you okay, this or that, I had a sense of entitlement. I had an ego, but it was really an ego of inferiority. And um, yeah, there was never, I never was seeking treatment because I never needed it. And in my own mind, I never had a problem. But um, yes, it did when I began to realize it played a huge, you know, how could I admit this? How could right. I say, the, how could I break my parents' heart? 
and go to them and say, again, at the time, mom and dad, I'm addicted to painkillers. I couldn't. And what I did, to your point, I stopped using cocaine and said, I'm good. I'm no longer using the dirty street drugs or whatever. Now I'm only taking things as prescribed, even though I was writing my own prescriptions and <laughs> stealing prescription pads and all of these illegal, terrible behaviors that I never could have envisioned myself doing that in my mind were justified because I deserved, needed a pill. And quite honestly, I didn't know how to live without. It happened like a dripping faucet, you know, at the end of your your billing cycle, you owe six hundred dollars. You're like, how could a drip be six? That's what happened. Okay. Uh, before I finally became aware, I was covered, and I couldn't get out, and I didn't know how to get out. Okay. So, so let's talk about that. How how long did you live in that space, and how did you finally crawl out? So, you know, I, I was court mandated through either my law license through DC DIFAS at the time with my children. And, you know, it was a waste. It was a waste of everybody's time because I wasn't even receptive, ready, willing. I don't like the word wants, like I didn't want it at the time. I don't think that people understand the brain damage that is done. So my frontal lobe, my judgment just didn't exist. I didn't have causal thinking. So all of the mandated treatments didn't work. And then in late 2007, November 19th, 2007, you know, now there was no more question. I was homeless. My children were removed. I had a no contact order. I surrendered my law license. I literally lived in abandoned buildings or really dangerous places, or occasionally my parents would put me up at the Fairbanks and Seabright. And um, I tried to end my life because again, I did not know how to live without painkillers or substances at this point. It was anything. I didn't want to live that way anymore. But Pam, where did I, where did I even begin? I, did, I didn't even know where to begin. So I just wanted to end because I didn't know where to begin. So I, 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 I cut my wrist that night. So sorry. I mean, such a painful story. And I know who you are today. So and I'm, I'm, I'm happy when we get to that piece in here, um, I think that one of the things we try to accomplish, I know I do, and I know you do for people who are in that moment of where, to, I don't know where to begin. And it all feels so insurmountable in part. It's because we stay in the shadow with our recovery stories too, that there's no recognition that there's a way back. There's a pathway back. Um, and that that pathway might not include what you originally, the, the path that you were originally on, but it opens you up to this whole other world of possibilities. Um, and I know you're there now. So hey, from that sorry, can I just, I'm so sorry, Pam, because I just yeah. want to say one important thing about that night. And if anyone is in that position, this is what you have to hear. I truly felt like I was doing the most selfless, amazing thing I could for my family because I felt like they needed a break. I didn't want to per se die, but, you know, the, the emotions around that night were just so please know you're loved. Please know the world is not a better place without any of us. No, and like you said, as we're going to get on with my story, that's where the real fun will come in because, gosh, what would it be like? And so if you're in that dark moment, even though, like you said, Pam, I didn't know how to get out. Trust us. We love you. We, yep. we love you. You're loved. I use that word all the time now, and I know it makes some people feel uncomfortable, whatever, but I think it needs to be said, every person is valued in love, no matter how far you've fallen. And that, that night, I wish 
I had heard that. And so even if we plant the smallest seed. I, I love that you're using the word love. Um, you, you know, we can throw words like love and God and spirituality around because we're, you know, this is a peer driven organization, a peer driven effort and people shy away from some of the, I, I am a, a subscriber to multiple pathways, but that can people shy away from in the field from using words like love and God. And we want you and we're going to hold you and hug you and help you. Touch, and touch. <laughs> yes. I love touch. And, and I, you yes. know, I get it. I get it. There's a place where you can't use that stuff, but in our world, you know, we and do. what people do need to hear is that there's so many peers. There's so many people that are, you know, unfortunately have been in that same exact place that you just described. And we're just, aching to to love you and bring you from that place to a place of recovery so talk tell us about your recovery a little bit so then uh, yeah uh you know uh, here i am alive <laughs> and i said to myself like nick you're gonna have to you can do this like just like i did everything else i found a way to get over my fear of death i found a way to get good grades in school i found a way to become a good basketball player soccer player with what practice, 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 practice. That's what I did. So I just began practicing healthy habits, even though I wasn't necessarily buying in. And um, so I started, I, I was committed, quite frankly, for quite a while. So I finished that program. And then I started going to self-help AA, went to an intensive outpatient, went to individualized counseling. And for me, the most important thing that I could do, my journey, was go see a psychiatrist. And I never forget when my counselor, who I really had a good relationship with, suggested I go see a psychiatrist. I cried that night. I don't think I was ever so hurt in my life. I said, he thinks I'm crazy. Here I am. I'm not using drugs. I'm not drinking. I pray. I eat. I walk. I do. I do everything to be this good little Nikki. And he tells me I need psychiatric help. And when the doctor prescribed the medicine, she diagnosed me with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. Little did I know I was saving. They saved my life. Thanks. My mind finally had quiet and peace. Like I remember I went to my first AA meeting and we held hands at the end. I hadn't been touched in six or eight months. I, my mind was like a war zone all the time. Like so loud. I couldn't, I couldn't connect with people, even though I so badly wanted to, it reminds me of the Sistine Chapel where they're almost touching, you know, I was so close, but when I went and got on the psychiatric medicines, I could, I could hold somebody's hand. I could say, I need help. And those are the most powerful words I've said. And, um, you know, it was a slow journey. I, I honestly, I read every self-help book I could get my hands on. I went to garage sales. I went and got food stamps. I went and got family um, family care, said I could meet my basic needs, Pam. I mean, you know, I was very fortunate. My mom and dad did give me a place to stay in their home, but they said I had to be self-sufficient. So I was on, and rightfully so, of course. So I, I went, I learned to meet my basic needs. Um, I learned how to go to the dentist again. I learned how to go to the doctor and take care of myself. And basically I let you or someone like you love me until I could start the process of forgiveness and healing. So your love kept me growing kind of like, you know, you're watering a plant until I could do it. And I literally, there was nothing I didn't do church, every religion you can think of every spiritual book. I just 
just dove in wellness as much as I dove in death and sickness. And you, um, you changed your, the direction of your life in terms of how you serve others now, right? Uh, as, as compared to how you were serving people as an attorney and, um, and tell, tell, you know, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So I, I, I did consent to disbarment. And, um, one thing was they said I could always come back and that got me through a lot of dark nights. So, um, I did make an application before the Supreme court to be, to vacate my disbarment, my consent, and I had a random audit, et cetera. So that was going to happen. And I was going to help, you know, people with substance use disorder. I am so against the criminalization of substance use disorder and mental health. And this was my plan. And in 2017, in a one sentence ruling, they denied me. And it was again, another dark night and I prayed. And then the next day I see this literally the next week, I see this thing about expungements. And if you graduated from drug court, you can get expungement, which opened up a whole new world to me because guess what? Now I could finally be a counselor. So in typical Nikki fashion, I applied to New Jersey Prevention Network to get a scholarship and I'm just going to be the lowest level credentialed person there could be. Two days later, I'm enrolled at Monmouth going for my double dual this and that. <laughs> so, and that's like, that's just a long story because again, I, 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 whatever. Uh, so I did, I went back to Monmouth. I got my master's of science in clinical mental health counseling with a concentration in substance use disorders. And now I, I, I do what I love. I bring all of my skills and I, I bring all of my, my assets, including most important, my lived experience. Because mm -hmm. before I looked at stigma as again, my concept of the person with substance use disorder, my concept of how I was judged by people for being in recovery. Stigma is so much more than that. Now I have a different lens. Stigma is a cause of substance use disorder. Sorry. That's Stigma okay. is a, a barrier to treatment. Stigma is the reason people don't use medication for opioid use disorder. Stigma is the reason people are dying. Stigma is the reason we don't have proper funding and that we have a 40% unmet need in New Jersey. That's a disgusting number of unmet treatment needs for mental health and substance use disorder. So yes, I have completely pivoted. Um, I love what I do. Um, it's just, and like you said, Pam, to not love the people I work with would be impossible. They are my heroes. They are my heroes. And so we are so lucky to have you as an advocate in our field. And you, as you said, you bring all of this knowledge and experience and most importantly, your lived experience not everybody is a clinician and a peer. And so we need more of you helping us. Um, I just want to hear a little bit about how you are, if you're comfortable right now with your children and your family. So again, like, you know, the, the lawyer, Nikki, made the best arguments. I was citing the most important cases because I had a no contact order. I wasn't even allowed to speak with my children. I was sober six months. And again, I went in there with the, the best preparation and the judge said, you're a risk for relapse. And I'm like, that's not a legal term, but whatever. You know what got me, my children? And you know what? Let me say that. I didn't get my children back. They got me back. Nice. I got well. I got well. I got full custodial rights back. Um, we've been reunited now. Basically, we reunited in 2008. 
the triplets, I have triplets. They're one graduated a year early from college with their bachelor's in social work. The other two are finishing college. My little guy is 18. We have, again, we've been through a lot of counseling. We're very open to the therapeutic process. There's been a lot of pain, but my gosh, we have such a loving, beautiful relationship. They are my biggest supporters. Like when I went back to school, I had to ask them, my guys, how do you do e-campus? How do you do this? My, <laughs> my one daughter goes like this, mom, I picked the older lady to be a partner for you. Oh, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> you know, and it was so nice because we were all in school together and you know, the, 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 Wounds healed, and I'll, I can say this to people who've walked it, our relationship is better than I than when I ever began. We paid a high, ridiculous price for it, but I can't describe the fullness. I still do suffer tremendously with major depressive disorder, so much so I've undergone electroconvulsive therapy. I am sometimes crippled by the disease. I've had um, panic disorder with agoraphobia, and um but I still live a very full life. It is okay. Like you can have, you can be in remission from substance use disorder. You can live with mental health disorders, just like we live with um, diabetes. I have psoriasis. Psoriasis sometimes I have bleeding from my skin. I live with it. And mental health is no different. And it's just, I, that's where we need because working clinically, you say to someone, would you like to see a psychiatrist? No, I'm not taking medicine. Medicine is, and not for everyone, but I'm saying being open to the idea of medicine could be life-saving. We have to decrease the stigma. We have to say that, listen, I, I have mental health diagnosis. It's not who I am. I'm a lot of things. I'm a lot of things. And, and again, what I have found the most is just loving others, giving back and I know this is an amorphous word, but having faith, I'm not a burden to people anymore. I, I don't have that, those feelings I had that night, a lot of self-forgiveness still working through it. And most importantly, knowing that I'm advocating for people who aren't here anymore. I was saved twice by Narcan, Pam. I have a traumatic brain injury. I could have been, I could not be here. And I almost have an obligation and honor if you will, for the people who are not here to be their voice, because but for the grace of God, go I. It's I don't want to say it's luck, but it is. I don't know what else to say. You know, it's it's happenstance. I'm here and they're not, and I'm their voice, and I'll never and I, be quiet. Yeah, it's beautiful to hear that. I, I've shared that sentiment with some people who, you know, as we lose people that we love, you know, it happens on the regular now, unfortunately, and. I, I know for me that works and I do share that same sentiment with people that, you know, we are here to carry on in, in their name and in their honor because they can't be here and we've been chosen. However you want to look at that word chosen or faith or to wake up the next day. And so we have an obligation and an honor to be the voice for the people that are now voiceless. Um, so I agree with you a thousand percent there. I also love that you root everything in this concept of wellness, that you, you got well and you continue to work on your wellness. I, when I think about families and the impact that substance use has on families, I see you, your wellness as the soil, honestly. The, the whole, you've like transplanted your family out of this pot that had all this you know, mixed soil of addiction and mental health in, a, um, in an untreated way. 
you know, in an unaddressed way and you've uprooted them and said, here, I have some really good soil that addresses, that acknowledges mental illness and addiction with uh, compassion and humility without shame and with treatment. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the image that you've conjured up for me. And I thank you for that, Nikki, because, because I know you're vocal and you share that with so many other people. Yeah. And, and Pam, I, and I don't say this because it's you, but look at the people I get to meet. Look at you. I never had friends in life. Now I have the most loyal friends. You can, the most loyal people that I can call and say I'm hurting or I can call and say I'm having a great day. And guess what? You're equally invested in either one because mm-hmm. you care. And it's just, I've, I've, it's opened up a world to me. I didn't know existed. Success is no longer measured. Like I used to measure it. Right. Wellness isn't about abstinence or recovery or how many years you have or how many days. It's about, am I living my best life? What does my best life look like? And even if it may be managing depression and brushing my teeth is a victory, so be it. Then we celebrate that. And other days, I'm meeting with legislators and shouting on brick So it, it can be both. And I think that that's where people, you know, kind of some self-acceptance. Pam. Everybody's yeah. so hard on themselves, you know, and you can be for lack of a better word, at your lowest, like I was, and still live a full and meaningful life. Full and meaningful, not perfect, not perfect, but full and meaningful. Love it. I love it. So I don't know the history of our podcast and the whole Recovery Speaks, you know, effort that we're doing. It actually was rooted in uh, the COVID pandemic. And when we shut down in March of 2020 in our agency, like so many others had to pivot to, you know, virtual world and other creative ways to stay connected to the people we serve. We started a, a Rise with Hope podcast and not a podcast, I'm sorry, a Facebook live thing on every day. One of us would volunteer to get up early and talk to the Facebook community and share how we were doing that day in terms of, you know, our feelings about being isolated or fear and all of that. And it turned into this incredible daily session that we had like 50,000 followers. It was, and all we did was just share a simple um, self-care practice. You know, I would write, I would talk about what a gratitude list has done for me or what meditating will do for me. And, and so, and everybody else would share whatever was working for them. So I, I try to end our podcast with asking the people who join us here, if they could share you know, what's, what's a self-care practice that you, you use, especially on those days when, you know, maybe brushing your teeth is the biggest accomplishment for your day. Like what is your self-care practice um, and that you could share with our community? So I have so many, I think of my dogs, my kids, I talk to my parents who are deceased, but probably the one that I would like people to hear the most, and it's hard because I'm going to do it right now. I let myself cry. I let myself be me. And so if I'm having a rough morning, I have it. I just have it. You know what I mean? And especially in these times with so much going on, I just, I'm kind to myself. So whatever kindness looks like at that moment, if it's, you know, again, just crying or, you know, texting someone saying rough day, I do that. I I no longer carry the weight of, of a facade, I'm just who I am and I'm, I'm okay with that. And then I go to people who help me even more. So I think just kind of meeting myself right where I am, 
you know, and not, not pushing too hard, not, um, not having expectations and really allowing myself to be human. Uh, that's so beautiful. Thank, thank you, Nikki. I get it. The whole crying part I, as, as human service providers, we kind of are trained to rush in and take the pain away, you know, and no tears are natural healers. Tears are our body's you know, natural healing mechanism. And right, so, right. you know, it's okay to let those tears come, you know, and move through that moment. So I love that. That's such a great, you know. Yeah, like not, not, not self-pity, but you get it. Exactly. And pain sends a message. When we're hurting, we're getting a message from our body. What's going on? Do I need to, you know, revisit the depression? Do I need more time for myself? Do I need to change? Whatever. But you're so right. Tears are cathartic. They release what's so yes, that's that would be my, you know, my my secret that's maybe hardest to share, but you know, if anyone needs to hear it. Thank you. All right. So I just uh, you know, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, thank I'm looking you. forward to it was my thing. <laughs> <laughs> you have a great weekend and um I'll yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Hope Sheds Light Rise with Hope podcast and the Recovery Speak series. If you are enjoying Rise with Hope, you can join us by subscribing on iTunes. The Recovery Speak series is supported by Monmouth Cares of Monmouth County and the Ocean County Health Department. We really want to hear from you. Please send in your comments, share your stories with us. Let us see how recovery is working in your life and in your communities. You can visit us at hopeshedslight.org. Have a great day, and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to Rise with Hope.